Good morning. I'm glad to be connecting with you again this week. And uh, as we get started, let me just say thanks to those of you who contributed to our food drive for some needy families. Uh, so this message is pre-recorded. I can't tell you yet all the details of how that played out, how the families were blessed, but uh, I will fill you in next week on that. Also, I want to let you know the Red Cross has reached out to us. In fact, as I'm recording this, they're in our Trinity Youth Room conducting a blood drive right now. They've reached out to us because their other location where they are, uh, they were planning the drive, ended up having to close their doors. And they told me that, that Trinity had a reputation of being able to help, so they reached out, and I'm happy to say we were able to support our community. Uh, if you were at Trinity this last fall during our sermon series, Anchored, when we studied the book of Hebrews, you may remember a passage from Hebrews chapter 10. It tells us this, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. That's uh, that, that one another command, it's pretty hard to live out these days, gathering together, encouraging one another. Now, you may also remember in that same series, I gave everybody a copy of a book called How to Walk in the Church. That's another thing we're not really doing right now. But I came across an article from that same author of that book, an Australian man named Tony Payne, and I wanted to share some of his thoughts. He talks about this whole idea of a virtual church, and that word virtual, it actually has two meanings. Uh, one, it could just mean pretty much the same. Like, for example, I was virtually exhausted, or I was virtually dependent on her for everything. It, it can mean just pretty much the same. But it also has another meaning, of course. It can mean the extension of something through the use of technology, as in a virtual meeting or virtual church, right? But when it comes to virtual church, church through technology, it's simply not virtual church. It, it's not pretty much the same. It's something totally different. And we still pray together. We still open God's Word together. We still sing together, even though it's a bit awkward. Uh, on my case, my singing is just as awkward as it always is. But, but in these moments, I think there's a couple of verses that can help us. First, a well-known verse from Matthew 18. Jesus makes a promise that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there among them. So even though the church is not virtually the same as we might like it to be, we can still be confident in our virtual church because Jesus himself has provided a way for the church to extend beyond the physical building. Each and every one of us who are believers in Jesus has the Spirit of God living in us, guiding us, drawing us to him and to each other. So I want you all to be encouraged by that truth. God is with us. Jesus is with us, the Holy Spirit is with us, even when we can't be with each other. As a way to help us lock that truth in, we're going to do something uh, virtually next Sunday, something that only the church can do. Next Sunday, April 5th, we're going to observe communion, and of course we'll do it in our own homes, but I want you to know about it now so that uh, you could be preparing for that. You can gather your own supplies if you need. We're happy to get some supplies and get those to you. Just let us know if you need us to get communion supplies to you. We're happy to do that. So, so that's coming next week, and I know it's going to be a blessing to each of us. Well, hey, I don't know what you and your family are doing to help pass the time in this quarantine. Our family's done all kinds of things. We started on a big puzzle. That helps pass the time. 
Uh, we found out that the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra has put all their concerts online. So we've enjoyed a couple of symphonies. We've done virtual tours of museums. Uh, I got a sourdough bread starter going. We've been baking. Uh, we watched a class on Mediterranean cooking, all kinds of stuff. And I've done a lot of reading. I always do a lot of reading, but I've, uh, I've always done uh, a little bit more in the past few days. I've done some more. And one article I read from John Piper has made me think a lot about this last chapter of Jonah. The headline of the article is pretty shocking. It says, he killed his wife and children. Can he really be forgiven? And the article talks about a news story out of Colorado, a man who, who brutally murdered his family. He was convicted, sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. But as he was in prison, he claimed to have found God. He, he claims that he found salvation. Well, this young woman wrote in to John Piper. She heard about the story about this man who supposedly found God in prison after doing all this just, just terrible stuff. And her initial response was anger. She says this, she says, Is it wrong for me to not want this man who committed unspeakable acts to know my Jesus? Well, it's a powerful question, it's a powerful story, and it gets to the heart of what we've talked about all through this book of Jonah. God is fully just. His justice is perfect and right, and at the same time, God is fully merciful. His mercy is entirely his to dispense. Your question, is it wrong for me to feel this anger, is the same question that's really at the heart of this last chapter of Jonah, which we'll study today. That question comes up twice in this short but powerful conclusion to the book of Jonah. So I want us to, to sit in the tension of that question for a bit as we dive into our study. And as we turn our attention to the text, let's just take a moment to remember something that uh, is going to be really important today as we go through Let's remember who this book is for. This story of Jonah is all about the Ninevites, the people of Assyria, but remember, it's for the people of God. It's a story that was written for God's people, people just like us. So even though it takes place far away, it should hit home for us more than anything. And with that in mind, let's read Jonah chapter 4. It starts off this way. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to Yahweh, Please, Yahweh, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Yahweh, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Yahweh asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted. He wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And Yahweh said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. 
So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. So there's a lot of things to talk about here. A bizarre object lesson with a plant and a worm and this strange comment at the end of the chapter, but let's just take it slow. We'll start at the beginning. The chapter starts off with Jonah being angry, and we need to ask ourselves why. Why is Jonah angry? I mean, after all, God asks him that same question, so, so we should. In part, the answer is that Jonah is angry because of what happened at the end of chapter 3. So if you remember the story from chapter 3 of Jonah, he's preached to the Ninevites. He tells them, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. And they responded. They turned from their evil behavior. So chapter 3 ends with this statement. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. So God doesn't punish them as he said he would, and Jonah responds with anger. So we got to ask that question, why is he angry? Now most folks who read the story, most of us would say, Jonah's angry because God didn't punish the Ninevites. He's angry because they got mercy from God. That's what most people would say. But I don't think that's quite right. I'm going to tell you the answer to that question, why is Jonah angry? And I'm going to give you the answer by asking another question. What does Jonah know? I mean, think about it. At this point in the story, what does Jonah know? You see, chapter 4 tells us Jonah goes out on a hill east of the city to see what would happen to the city. He doesn't yet know what's going to happen. He's preached. He's done what God asked him to do, finally. And he goes to watch what the result will be. He doesn't yet know what God might do or not do for the Ninevites. This verse at the end of chapter 3, it's, it's information from the narrator of the story to us, the readers, but it's not necessarily information that Jonah knows yet. So Jonah is not yet angry that God spared the Ninevites. Instead, I think Jonah is angry at the whole process. He knew from the beginning what would happen. That's why he ran away initially. He assumes that God would allow the Ninevites to repent and be spared from disaster. He knows God's character. And he figures that it would go this way. In fact, that's even what he says right at the beginning of chapter 4. Jonah prayed to the Lord, Please, Yahweh, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. See, he reminds God of who he is. He uses this, this formula, this common way to describe God. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. It's a description of God that shows up several times in the Bible. We're going to talk more about him in a bit. But for now, Jonah is angry. He's, he's angry at the whole process. Why did he even have to go through all this, knowing who God is and what God would eventually do? But I think more than anything, Jonah's anger has to do with how easy the Ninevites will be treated. I mean, let's remember, these guys were terrorists. They were not just enemies of Israel. They were terrible people, ruthless killers, torturers. And as we read chapter 3 of Jonah, they just offer a quick apology. They take a few days to diet, and God allows them to go on about their day. There's no sense of, of true heartfelt repentance. There's no entering into a covenant relationship with Yahweh, the, people of, the way that the people of Israel have. In fact, in this book of Jonah, throughout the book, Yahweh is a major character. Jonah and Yahweh talk extensively. Yahweh controls all kinds of things. But in chapter 3, the Ninevites, they don't talk to Yahweh. Chapter 3 tells us the people of Nineveh believed God. Okay, well, that seems legit. But 
Their belief is not necessarily in Yahweh. That word used here in chapter 3 is not Yahweh, the specific name of God, but it's, it's Elohim, a more generic word for God. So they get off a little bit easy, just, just generic turning from evil, but not necessarily true repentance and true faith in Yahweh, the one true God. So if this is true, if this is the reason that Jonah is angry, then it helps us make sense of the rest of the chapter. This first four verses describe Jonah's anger, and then Yahweh responds with this question in verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer. In fact, in the original Hebrew text, the, the Hebrew text of Jonah, there's a little mark in the text here, a mark that's used to indicate a pause. So as rabbis or other teachers were reading Jonah out loud, they would read, is it right for you to be angry and then pause? No response. But making sense of Jonah's anger helps us understand the object lesson that comes next. Let's reread the story starting in verse 5. Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God, that's Yahweh Elohim, appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted. He wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. So Jonah goes outside the city, presumably up on a high place where he could see what God might do. And Nineveh's out in the desert. It's hot. So Jonah builds himself a little makeshift tent, a shelter to keep him cool. But Yahweh does him one better. He causes a plant to grow up. We don't know what kind of plant, but, but something big enough or with big enough leaves to really outdo his little shelter, to give him genuine relief. And then God appoints a worm or some kind of parasite to destroy that plant. So clearly God's up to something here, trying to teach Jonah something, and therefore teach us something. It's a book for us, remember. And again, understanding Jonah's anger helps us make sense of this object lesson. And in fact, there's a great clue right in the text. I've said that this book of Jonah is so really well constructed, one of the things that's hard to see in English is how much wordplay there is. There's a lot of repeated words all throughout the book. If you remember from chapter 1, Yahweh threw a storm on the boat. The soldiers were throwing cargo off the boat. Jonah was thrown overboard. Lots of repeated words. Yahweh appointed a fish to swallow Jonah and save him. He appoints a plant to shade Jonah. He appoints a worm to eat the plant. He appoints a scorching wind. He even appointed Jonah to get up and go to the Ninevites and preach. Well, in this passage we just read, there's this word, verse 6. This plant is an act of mercy to rescue Jonah from his trouble. That's what the verse says. And that word that's translated trouble, it also shows up in the previous chapter, Jonah 3. That chapter tells us God relented from the disaster he had threatened the Ninevites with. So that word translated disaster is the same word that's trouble in chapter 4 verse 6. And that's a little bit of a clue to this object lesson. We start to understand that in this lesson, Jonah equals Nineveh. And so, for Jonah, the answer to his question, is it right for you to be angry? In this lesson, Jonah equals Nineveh. In the same way the Ninevites tried to protect themselves from disaster with their humble response, 
Jonah protects himself from trouble with a humble shelter. And yet God is demonstrating that both responses are inadequate. By themselves, both the response of the Ninevites and the shelter of Jonah are not enough to protect them from disaster. They both need something else. And in comes a plant. In this lesson, the plant is an act of mercy. Both the Ninevites and Jonah need mercy from God. For the Ninevites, the mercy comes when God chooses to relent. God chooses not to bring the destruction. He chooses that not because their response was sufficient, but simply because he's a God of mercy. And remember who this book is written for, for the people of God. So in the same way, Jonah equals Nineveh because Jonah's own self-made shelter is not enough to prevent him from experiencing trouble. He needs God's mercy. Well, this makes me think of our current situation. What we're doing is wise, limiting human interactions, washing our hands, social distancing. We're doing these things, and we should keep doing them. But just like Jonah, just like the people of Nineveh, we need something else. By ourselves, our response is not adequate. We need God's mercy. Us, as a church, our whole community, the whole world, we're all in need of God's mercy. And God demonstrates that very clearly to Jonah. He's demonstrating that to us as well. And this lesson about God's mercy comes home when God does to Jonah what Jonah wanted to happen in Nineveh. Jonah wanted Nineveh to get justice, no mercy. And that's what God demonstrates to Jonah next. God destroys the plant, and God sends this scorching wind. He removes his mercy for Jonah and gives only justice. So instead of mercy, giving us what we don't deserve, God gives justice to Jonah, giving us what we deserve. And the final section, the final verses of this book, help us to apply it to our own lives. So let's read the end of that story, verse 9. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow, it appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. Yahweh speaks, and he gets the final word. He asks Jonah again this question, is it right? And of course, in light of what we now understand about the passage, about this object lesson, we have to say, no, it's not right. For Jonah to be angry about God's mercy. It is not right for him to be angry about the mercy that comes in the form of the plant, nor is it right for Jonah to be angry about the mercy that the Ninevites received, even though they didn't do anything to earn it. And yet it's God's last question to Jonah that I think is the most important, the most potent. Should I not care, God says. He says he cares about Nineveh, even about the animals that live in the city. He cares about them in spite of the fact that they're morally ignorant, not even knowing their right from their left when it comes to the choices they make. Yet God cares for them. He gives mercy to them. By contrast, Jonah cares only about himself. He cares for the plant, which really means he just cares about his own comfort. And I think this is a potent question. It's a question not just for Jonah. It's a question for us. Notice, this is the end of the book. There is no answer. This question hangs. There's a pause, and we have to provide the answer. Should you not care? Should I not care? Should our church not care? 
What role do we have in caring for people who are in need of God and His mercy? I mentioned at the beginning of this study, in the first week, I mentioned my desire with this study is for each and every one of us to develop our own personal burden for advancing the gospel in our community. Each one of us, kids, students, adults, all of us have the role, the mandate from God to go and spread the gospel. Not just to, to go to a church that does it, not just to give money to missionaries that do it, but each of us, individually, we all must care. We show our care with words, we do it with our actions, we do it with our attitudes. All those things are necessary. That's the big idea of this book. All of us should care. Not just caring for ourselves, but caring for others. So what does care look like? If it's so important for us to care, what does it look like? Well, you don't need me to tell you, it is a changing world. Even from day to day, what we can do and can't do is changing. So that means the specifics of how we care for our community is going to change. This pandemic brings not only challenges, but also great opportunities for us to demonstrate care. So what does care look like? There's a lot of things we could say, but one thing I think is helpful, one, one helpful way to answer that question, how do we care, comes right out of this chapter. At the beginning of Jonah 4, Jonah reminds God of his own character. And as I mentioned before, that's a, a big, often repeated description of God. God himself gives us that way to describe him. It's a name of God's own choosing in Exodus 34. So let's read that description of God and see how it helps us learn to care for our community. Jonah 4, verse 2, Jonah says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, one who relents from sending disaster. So I think for us, when we consider what it looks like for us to show our care, we can look at the very character of God. How can we reflect God's own character to the world? So let's look at this description and apply it to ourselves. First, graciousness. Simply put, this quality graciousness, it's defined as giving to someone in need. Think about that. Graciousness means you give to someone, and specifically you give to those who have need. In fact, the very first time this word appears in the Bible, it gives us a good clue to what graciousness is really all about. In the book of Exodus, God is describing how his people should live, how they should treat others in a way that really reflects God's character. And the first time this word gracious appears, it talks about a loan, a situation in which one neighbor has borrowed from another neighbor. And just like with any loan, you collect collateral, something of value, so that if the loan is not repaid, you still have something to show for it, right? But if you're going to reflect God's character, then you live differently. And this passage in Exodus says that if you collect your neighbor's cloak as collateral, his coat, then you should give it back each night so that your neighbor doesn't get too cold. You give it back. Now, your financial advisor would never tell you to return the item you have as collateral. Dave Ramsey would tell you, don't do that. But if you want to reflect God, then you live differently, with graciousness. You give to those who are in need. And of course, that graciousness is exactly how God has treated the Ninevites, how he treated Jonah, how he treats us, giving us what we need, not withholding good things from us. Even though we're in need, we're unable to earn things on our own, God gives them to us because he's gracious. That's how we should live, too, reflecting God's graciousness to the world. 
The second quality listed here is God's compassion. Compassion. This is God's tender mercy. Throughout the Bible, it's described as God's parental love, his fatherly love, sometimes even his motherly love. And, and again, I want to I want to point us to a great place in the Bible where the same word appears. In Psalm 78, the entire psalm is, is great. It's a retelling of God's dealings with Israel, how God has interacted with his people. It's a, a wonderful recounting of their history. And right in the middle of it, we read this. It says, but the people deceived God with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were insincere toward him. They were unfaithful to his covenant. Yet he was compassionate. He atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Well, hey, I'm sure you've got much nicer friends than me. You run with a much better crowd. Your friends, your neighbors would never lie. They would never deceive. They don't have insincere hearts. But if you ever did meet anyone like that, then this is how God deals with those kinds of people, with compassion, with tender mercy. Of course, you and I are people just like that. We're people who have insincere hearts, who deceive and lie, and God has dealt with us with compassion. That's how we should reflect him. And buried right in here, right in the middle of Israel's history lesson, is a beautiful picture of the gospel. God sees sinful people, and not only does he feel compassion for them, but he acts on it. He atones for their sins. That's just what God has done through Jesus. He sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for us, paying the punishment that our sins deserve. And as a result of his atoning work on our behalf, then we can live in a way that reflects his compassion to other people, those who still need his atoning work applied to their lives through faith. So let's make sure we don't fall into the same trap as Jonah. Jonah saw this quality of God, this compassion, but he wasn't willing to act on it. He wasn't willing to extend it to others. And I think that's a very big trap for us, too. We're happy to accept God's tender mercy, sitting in the shade of our own plant, but we're not willing to share that shade with others or to point others to God's atoning work. And in this time of social, social isolation, it's hard it takes creativity for sure. And the temptation is to say, oh yes, as soon as things return to normal, I will do that. But the reality is we need to start with our hearts, examining our own heart attitudes, being willing to extend, to reach out, to get up and go, share God's love with others. So we reflect God's graciousness, his compassion. The very next quality that Jonah mentions is being slow to anger. Now as a culture, we're very quick to anger. Our entire news cycle is built on instant rage these days. Yet if we want to reflect God, we need to be people of peace, slow to anger. So what does that look like? Well, for God, let's first be very clear. God does get angry. There are plenty of instances where God gets angry. In fact, maybe you remember a moment in the Gospels where Jesus, even meek and mild Jesus, gets angry. He sees people abusing the temple, and he, he fashions his own whip. He, he sits down, he makes a whip, no doubt seething in anger while he's doing it, and then he goes into the temple court and kicks out all the sellers, those folks who are taking advantage of the poor. So God does get angry. However, unlike you and me, his anger never gets the best of him. Now, God never had to be quarantined in his house with all his family, but hey, he never acts in a way that he later regrets. 
He never does or says anything for which he has to later go back and apologize. Even in his anger, he's patient, slow to anger. The same psalm I mentioned a moment ago, Psalm 78, that talks about God's compassion. It goes on. I read this part before, verse 38. Yet he was compassionate. He atoned for their iniquity. He did not destroy them. But the verse goes on to say this. He often turned his anger aside and did not unleash all his wrath. So see, God has anger. But time after time, he restrains his anger. He does not stir up his full wrath. I don't know about you, but that is incredibly comforting. Every day, time after time, God is merciful and patient with me. As angry as I get, as impatient as I am, time after time, God is patient. We should be, too, modeling that kind of patience. And it comes straight out of God's compassion. His atoning compassion for us gives us the ability to be slow to anger ourselves. God's renewing work in us is what makes us able to reflect Him. There's one more quality of God that Jonah highlights in this verse. God is abounding in faithful love. And this phrase, faithful love, it translates just one word in Hebrew, the word hesed. We talked about it briefly in Jonah chapter 2 a couple weeks ago. Hesed is, is God's love freely given, not earned, but simply given as a free gift. And if we're going to represent God in our valley, then we have to abound in this kind of love. We've got to give away love freely, not holding it back, and not only giving it away, but giving tons and tons of it away, because there's an abounding supply of it. God abounds in faithful love, and we should too. Yet Jonah misses the mark here. He withholds God's love from the Ninevites, and I think we all too often withhold God's love from those who need it. I'm reminded of a poem maybe you're familiar with by Thomas Carlyle. It's a poem called You, Jonah. And the poem closes with these very powerful lines. It says, And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonahs in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. We have a great chance to come around to God's way of loving, abounding in love. We have 57,000 chances to demonstrate God's love. So let's not hoard God's mercy for ourselves. Let's reflect him fully to our community. Throughout this series, I've been encouraging us to get up and go. That's the original command that God gives to Jonah. That's the way the 57,000 people in our valley who are not exposed to the gospel will be able to find God and his son Jesus if we get up and go. And one of the best ways we do that is by showing that we care. So as we leave this series, let me leave us with the last word, a new command. Get up and care. Go, reach our valley with the life-changing message of the gospel. And we do it by demonstrating God's grace, his compassion, his mercy withholding his anger, and his abounding love. Let's pray. God, uh, we do love you. We want to be uh, not just people who are loved by you, but people who are channels of your grace and your mercy and your love. And uh, we're challenged by the reality that too often we do withhold your love from people who need it out of 
fear, out of anxiety, out of uh, stubbornness, whatever it is, Lord, we want to repent of those things. And we want to be people who are uh, getting up and going, who are caring about the city, the community that you've put us in, Lord. And uh, we love you. We want to reflect you to the world. We want the love that you have for us to just flow, not just into us, but all the way through us to these 57,000 people who need to understand and embrace the gospel. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.